If you're a fan of Inside the Vatican, then you would love all of the other smart Catholic resources from America Magazine. Every day, you can find the best in Catholic media from America, whether it's the daily scripture reflections, Vatican analysis, or culture reviews from a Catholic perspective. You need to be reading America for a well-rounded Catholic point of view. And there's never been a better time to try it. To introduce more people to America during the season of Lent, you can try a subscription to America for just $1 for your first month. If you're already a subscriber, this is a great chance to introduce America to someone else in your life. So please help us spread the word. To take advantage of this $1 offer, visit www.americamagazine.org forward slash trial. That's americamagazine.org slash trial. Or click the link in the show notes. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. I'm your host, Colleen Dully. There were 15,000 people present in St. Peter's Square for Pope Francis' last public address before he began his spiritual retreat. Questo pomeriggio, insieme con i collaboratori della Curia, inizieremo gli esercizi spirituali. And he has invited all cardinals in Rome, heads of dicasteries, and members of the Roman Curia to join him. Per favore, non dimenticatevi di pregare per me. Buon pranzo e arrivederci. This week, the Vatican is relatively quiet as Pope Francis and the top Roman Curia officials make their Lenten retreat. Instead of making a retreat together, led by a preacher chosen by the Pope, the Pope has asked each official to make the retreats individually, focused on private prayer and spiritual exercises. A new book that came out last week aims to help people of faith do just that. Austin Ivory's new book, First Belong to God, on retreat with Pope Francis. The book draws from Pope Francis's 10 years worth of papal documents, plus his old retreat talks from when he was a Jesuit spiritual director, and it distills them into an eight-day Ignatian retreat. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Joining me from his home in Herefordshire, England, to talk about his latest book is Austin Ivory. Welcome back, Austin. Great to be back with you, Colleen. So, Austin, why does the Pope want the Roman Curia officials to make their retreat on their own this year? I know he's done this the last couple of years, but what accounts for that shift? Yeah, he did it last year, and I think he's done it at least once before. And it is a change from the pattern of the first few years of the pontificate when there was always a preacher who came and you know, gave the talks, and often those preachers would then turn what they gave into books. I don't know is the answer, but I suppose <laughs> there comes a point where maybe the curia has said to him, look, actually, we'd love to have more time for personal reflection. Maybe he's listening to them, or maybe he thinks it's time that they had more time for personal reflection. Mm -hmm. I believe the first year that he did this was 2021. And, you know, in the past, you and I have talked a lot about the Pope's COVID era writings. This book is based on a retreat that you gave to a group of Jesuits in 2020 in the midst of the COVID pandemic. I think you gave it on Zoom. Why publish it now? The book has its origin actually in three places. One of them is indeed the retreat that the British Jesuits asked me to give them in lockdown. And they asked me for an eight-day spiritual exercises, but using the insights and the teachings of the pontificate. So how do we 
get into Francis, as it were, through the spiritual exercises. And what I used was Francis's own insights also from his days as a Jesuit when he gave loads of talks. So I have those talks that I drew on. And at the same time, I was doing with him a book that became Let Us Dream. Right. So all these three things kind of came together. And I suppose in the middle of all of that, and a lot of people said to me after the retreat, look, why don't you publish it? And I mm-hmm. thought, actually, it would be great to do it as a proper retreat. But I've waited this long because actually I wanted to make it much broader than what that original retreat was about. I wanted to make it about mm. the broader crises of our time, the whole crisis of belonging. So it's on a much bigger canvas than that original retreat. Yeah, let's talk about that crisis of belonging. It's kind of the frame for this whole book. And in the way that you write about it, it sort of combines all the crises that Pope Francis is often talking about. So the migration crisis, wars, ecological destruction, even declining birth rates. What is the Pope trying to say about belonging, do you think? Like, how do all of these crises relate to belonging? Yeah, I mean, when I look back on the pontificate and I look at the central teachings, so you think Evangelii Gaudium, Joy of the Gospel 2013, Laudato Si in 2015 on our relationship with the common home, and Fratelli Tutti in 2020, which is about our relationship with each other. Mm -hmm. In a way, all three are, are addressing this crisis of belonging, the triple crisis to God, to creation, to each other. So for Francis, and when I spoke to him about this, by the way, last year, I told him I was going to do this book. And I said, you know, is it okay if I call it a retreat with Pope Francis? And he laughed and said, what does the Pope think? (laughs) But, but, uh, But he actually really liked the theme of belonging. And I said to him, look, I think in a way that's what your pontificate is addressing. And he agreed. So what is it that he's addressing here? Well, in a sense, that triple relationship all our crises, all our misfortunes, one might say our suffering, comes from a dysfunction in those relationships. When our relationship is impaired in any of those three ways, or all three ways, we're in trouble. So the restoration of belonging is about understanding what closes us in on ourselves and prevents us opening up to the gift, which is primarily the gift of God, who is gift, and we are created out of gift. It's also the gift of creation, the created world, our creatureliness, and it's also the gift of each other. When we don't receive those as gift, but seek to instrumentalize them, possess them, dominate them out of anxiety or insecurity or a desire for power, that's when, if you like, our problems start. So we can't address the big challenges we face either individually or as humanity unless we address the deep spiritual crisis, which is ultimately a crisis of relationship, a crisis of belonging. Hmm. I want to ask you about so many of the chapters in this book that take on different ones of these themes that Francis has raised. But first, let me ask you kind of a 50,000 foot question. You know, you're a person who writes about the Vatican, writes about the papacy, you know, for news publications. I do the same. How is it different writing about this for spiritual reflection? It's a great question. In fact, when this was first suggested to me, I said, oh, no, no, you know, me write a spiritual book. You know, I'm just a journalist. You know, I'm just a commentator. But of course, actually, the truth is that that's not true. That's not just actually what this papacy means to me. It has meant to me an awful lot spiritually. I am a disciple of Francis. I'm happy to say it. What I, in many ways, promote and speak about is the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Pope Francis. Mm. And I've been on many retreats. I try and go on an eight-day retreat each year. I was once a Jesuit novice and did the 30 days. And actually, I found that Francis's own 
pontificate, but also his insights in these talks that I have from his days as a Jesuit have profoundly influenced me and the way I go about the exercises. Mm. So actually, the truth is, when I was honest, I kind of said to myself, well, actually, I can't entirely separate these two things. And I've been asked, particularly since Letter Stream, which has been used by many parishes and organizations to do kind of retreats or at least, you know, meetings and reflections. And I've been asked often to give talks to introduce them. So I've been, I suppose, gradually moving more and more into what we might call the formal retreat space. Mm -hmm. But then ultimately it was the suggestion, you know, came from the Jesuits themselves said, look, just do it. And I thought, well, I don't really have a good reason not to. Yeah. Has it affected how you then write about the news? I don't think it's affected how I know I'm quite capable of, on the one hand, giving a retreat talk and on the other hand, doing kind of commentary and analysis. I mean, I separate those two things. It's a great question. <laughs> it's definitely a self-interested question as like a Catholic journalist who also is trying to separate these things, but isn't sure where the line needs to be. Well, okay, here's the thing. I think that the best kind of Catholic journalism, the best kind of writing about the church and particularly about this Pope if we try to separate the spiritual dimension from it, then we're actually not being good journalists. Mm -hmm. You cannot, and I said from the beginning, I've written two biographies of the Pope, and you look around at biographies of Popes, and they're often written as if they are biographies of political leaders or statesmen or something. Right. And actually, that lens is wrong. <laughs> at least there's a lot in common, obviously, between a Pope and a great leader and so on. But ultimately, you know, when the Pope gets up in the morning and prays and makes decisions, the things he's concerned about, the horizon against which he makes decisions is different. It's a spiritual horizon. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we have a duty, I think, as journalists to grasp that spiritual horizon, mm -hmm. while not at the same time ignoring, if you like, the temporal concerns with which any pope is concerned. But one thing I've gained from doing this book enormously is I think I've kind of understood the dynamic of the pontificate now at a deeper level. And I hope that, as well as being a really good retreat, I hope what this does is bottle the pontificate <laughs> in mm -hmm. a way that makes it actually graspable for people in a way that perhaps when you're following the daily cycle of news, it's a bit harder to see. Yeah, that's definitely what I got while I was reading through it. You read this and I'm struck by how clearly the Pope sees the world and like you reflect with these things spiritually with his readings of the ecological crisis or the migration crisis and I feel like, oh, he's so right. He sees the truth of what's going on. And the truth is that's because he is a great discerner. Yeah. And he came to the pontificate. I mean, he says, I didn't come with a plan. And I think it's true. He wasn't expecting to be made pope. He didn't come with a, but he did come with a profound discernment. Mm -hmm. And that discernment was born of his own experiences, but also the discernment of the Latin American church, as I've often said, you know, when they met at a Parasido in 2007, discerned the signs of the times. They really understood the modern world, why the church has difficulties in evangelizing it at a depth, I think, that no other part of the church has done. And I think what you get with Francis is the fruit, not just of his own discernment, but a whole continent's discernment. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's a clarity and purpose, I think, to this pontificate that people, I think, understand that there is there, but sometimes they don't really understand what it is. Yeah, certainly Francis is not just a great discerner individually, but he also places a lot of value on discernment in common and has seen that work in Latin America. This is an Ignatian retreat. We've talked a little bit about discernment, which is obviously a big part of Ignatian prayer. Can you just tell us what does it mean to make an Ignatian retreat? 
So an Ignatian retreat is really a retreat based on the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, which is a classic retreat that he himself put together in the course of his life, which has lasted 500 years, and yet it's still somehow as relevant and as applicable now as it was back then. And the spiritual exercises are classically given over a month, or rather, as they say, four weeks. But that doesn't necessarily mean a calendar week. It's four weeks. There's a kind of a rhythm to the exercises. Mm -hmm. So week one is about accepting who we are, our creatureliness, also our sinfulness and God's mercy. So it's a chance to contemplate my life in the light of God's mercy. Week two is about the call of Christ and our choosing to follow Christ and his kingdom in his way. And some of the richest and most famous contemplations come from week two. Mm -hmm. And then we have the last two weeks, which actually are normally much shorter in calendar terms. Week three is following Christ in his passion. And week four is following Christ in his risen life. And again, very, very famous contemplations. So that's the rhythm of the exercises. So a spiritual director, when you're on a full spiritual exercises, takes you at your own pace, you know, through these four stages. Now, the eight-day exercises, which is what this is, is the classic short form of the spiritual exercises, which Jesuits and people like me go on each year to sort of refresh, if you like, that original experience we had. So we revisit the key contemplation. So it's a short form, but also it's the form in which most people nowadays do the spiritual exercises. That's to say most people who do them, at least in the Spanish-speaking world, it varies in the English-speaking world, will often go to a retreat house and do this kind of eight-day spiritual exercise, and we'll often have a preacher somebody who gives the points. And that's what this book is. In a sense, I'm giving the points Mm. with the help of Pope Francis for people doing that eight-day retreat. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that the way that you intend for this book to be used isn't necessarily just the eight-day retreat. Do you want to talk about some of the other ways that folks can use this book? There's a whole section at the back explaining. Well, I, I said to my spiritual director when I said to him, I said, actually, this is going to be a pretty content heavy eight day retreat if you really do, <laughs> if you do everything I'm suggesting. Because, you know, at the end of each day, I'm inviting people to go off and read slabs of encyclicals and, you know, chapter two of Laudato. So actually what I say at the end is, I mean, of course, you can do it over eight days, if you like, by missing out a lot of that reading. But to do it fully, I think the richest way of doing it would be for an organization, a parish, or any organization to do it over a series of weeks. In other words, you take day one is really week one. And then you each individually do the prayers, the meditations, and you have time for the reading. And then you get together each week, perhaps synodally, to share the fruits of what's come up for you in prayer. And I think that could be enormously powerful because the spiritual exercises are a journey of conversion. They, they lead us into mission. And so I think they could be very, very powerfully used in this way, using Francis's own pontificate, which is the implementation in many ways of that same mission, that same call to mission. I think that's how it could be used very powerfully. But, you know, let's see. It could also be used, obviously, and it will be, by individuals at home. And, you know, it's going to be very interesting for me to see how this is used and what the fruits are. Mm -hmm, Certainly. Maybe we can talk also about the role of silence in a retreat like this. You know, the Pope has asked the career officials to go on a silent retreat. Why is that important? Well, silence matters because it's a chance to listen deeply and hear deeply what the Spirit is saying to us. And obviously, we're doing that 
every time hopefully we contemplate it, we take an hour for prayer but actually only when you enter into the rhythm of silence do you begin to i suppose to allow the the subconscious to allow the deeper feelings and often the deeper kind of resistances to surface mm-hmm. and silence is an intimidating thing for people who aren't used to it i mean when i say i've been on a sort of eight day silent retreat we've got oh, i couldn't possibly do that you know <laughs> actually the first day usually is tough. What happens is when you start to go into silence, all your distractions and thoughts and so on flood in. You know, I find I'm often sleepless the first night because I'm beset mm. by all these thoughts. And you have to kind of get through that. But then when you get through that and you begin to enter into the silence, boy, do you love it. You know, so actually by the end of the week, you, know, you don't want to leave. And the world, of course, seems a very noisy rude place when you're coming out of silence because you've been in this place of... So I think a retreat is, as the name suggests, a place you retreat to. It's a little mini desert Mm -hmm. that you retire to. You're not supposed to stay there. You're supposed to come back out from it. And Jesus, of course, always does this in his own ministry. He has these incredibly busy days, full-on days, where he's healing and the crowds and the noise. And and then he withdraws to a quiet place, you know, and the crowds, of course, all go and look for him there. But he takes that time because his ministry ultimately is resourced from that deep place of inner silence and stillness, which we all need, Mm -hmm. and particularly those of us engaged in any kind of ministry. We've seen Francis incorporate this into the way that he, you know, kind of leads the Vatican. We know that he's getting up early himself and praying for an hour or two in the morning. He's had not just the Curia go on retreat, but also as you experienced the Synod go on retreat before its first assembly, and it's going to do that again. So really, this is kind of a fundamental part of how Francis sees us living out our mission as the church, as the Roman Curia, just as individual Catholics. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about a few of the specific themes in this book and what it was like to reflect on those. Stay with us. Welcome back. We're talking with Austin Ivory, author of a new book, First Belong to God, on retreat with Pope Francis. But before we return to our conversation, a quick word from our sponsor. Embark on a journey of spiritual elegance with Saints for Sinners, where each one-of-a-kind saint medallion is imported from Italy and meticulously hand-painted right here in New Orleans. Indulge in the rich stories of saints. Who's your personal favorite? As you observe Lent this year, you may discover new favorite saints, whether it's Jean-Baptiste de La Salle, the patron saint of teachers, or Saint Christopher, the patron saint of travelers. As Easter approaches, envision gifting this extraordinary piece to a special someone, a gesture that transcends the ordinary. Explore the divine craftsmanship and profound symbolism that Saints for Sinners offers at saintsforsinners.com. Embrace the beauty of tradition and connection in every lovingly crafted medallion. So Austin, for this book, you translated and published in English for the first time some quotes from some of Pope Francis's retreat talks from his days as a spiritual director. I should say a spiritual director to Jesuits rather than as the world's spiritual director, as you've often called him. Tell me a little bit about the ones that you chose to include and what it was like to read through all those texts. 
So these are three books which I discovered when I was researching the biography, my very first writing about Pope Francis. So way back in 2013, after his election, I was in Argentina. And I'd heard about these writings, and I couldn't find these books anywhere. I assumed that because he was Pope, they would all be republished, but they hadn't been. And Mm -hmm. it was actually a, a Jesuit who pulled them down from his shelf in a cloud of dust and lent them to me to photocopy. (laughs) And then I I started to read them and it was near the end of my trip. And I realized, wow, this is the key. You know, this is the thing. This is the heart, the soul, the mind of Bergoglio. And we can only understand the papacy from this. I have to admit, when I first started to read them, they were a little bit above my head and I needed to keep going back to them, but they were very helpful. But actually it was after the biography, I started to go back to them and start to see more and more. So they've been my companion these last 10 years, let me put it that way. So let's dig into some of the chapters of this book. One section I wanted to ask you about is called The Ecology of Mercy on Ourselves as Creatures Partnered with Creation. A few years after Laudato Si came out, you and your wife Linda moved to a small farm. Your Twitter followers will be very familiar with the lambs that you welcome every spring. I wonder how did being a smallholder, working a small farm, influence the way that you wrote this chapter, if it did at all? Yeah, well, it did, definitely. I mean, I suppose my own ecological conversion has been a big deal, you know, in my own life. It had begun before Laudato Si, but Laudato Si, I suppose, gave it form and urgency and so on and led me to commit to this life. I mean, you did used to write a lot about Pope Benedict and he was known as the Green Pope before Francis came along. Sure. I suppose my own interior conversion on this with Laudato Si really brought it to the fore was the need to have a relationship with the land, with creation. And I suppose I realized, like so many urban heady types, <laughs> that I didn't have much of that relationship and that I was poorer as a result and that my mm-hmm. spirituality was poorer. So I suppose the small holding we have here and the, the sheep and the trees and the hedges that we've been planting and the chickens and so on, I've been learning that relationship. And that's why that chapter is very much informed by this kind of a choice, really, that I think. The contemplation of the two standards at the heart of the spiritual exercises, I use that in the center of that chapter. So in a way, it's the center point of the retreat. Can you give us a quick recap of what the contemplation on two standards is? Absolutely. So the contemplation of two standards, St. Ignatius famously imagines two armies. Christ is addressing one and Satan is addressing the other. And Ignatius asks us to look at what each of those leaders, as it were, is saying to their followers. To what are they inviting them? And in the case of Satan, how is he urging them to tempt us away from the kingdom that Jesus is proposing? So it's a journey into, if you like, the meaning of what is the kingdom? What is the choice that really is involved in Christian discipleship? Mm -hmm. So what I do is take that choice, which Ignatius famously presents us with, and I ask some difficult big questions about how we live now, you know, how we choose to live. Do we want to have a relationship with creation, a relationship of service, of belonging? Or do we want to enter into the cycle that so much dominates our society of consumption, of exploitation, of rivalry? I think the two standards lends itself to the challenge of ecological conversion. I make quite a a lot of it in that chapter. But just earlier, actually, in day two, which is about the contemplation of God's mercy and our sin in relation Mm -hmm. to that, I was deeply struck by the sort of famous moment in the exercises where Ignatius invites us to let out a cry of wonder accompanied by surging emotion when we consider how all creatures have permitted me to live and have sustained me in life. 
And he goes on to talk about, you know, even when we have behaved sort of incredibly badly, when we were lost and closed in on ourselves, you know, we lived as if God didn't matter. Even then, the angels and the saints continued to intercede for us. And then he adds, and the heavens, sun, moon, stars, and the elements, the fruits, the birds, the fishes, and the other animals, why have they all been at my service? How is it that the earth did not open to swallow me up? And when I read that, I just thought, gosh, this is, you know, what a question now with everything we're mm-hmm. doing to the earth and the ecological crisis that we're facing and the soaring temperatures. You know, see how we're mistreating the earth. In a way, we don't deserve <laughs> to have an earth that is at our service, and yet it is. And sort of somehow to enter into that sense of gratitude and wonder, I think is a big part of the ecological conversion to which Laudato Si is calling us. We've really zoomed in on ecology, but I want to ask you more about this crisis of belonging. What are the elements of the crisis of belonging that Pope Francis sees in our world? Well, I think he sees it. I mean, you can see that Fratelli Tutti in 2020, his encyclical on fraternity, which is a a Franciscan encyclical like Laudato Si, it's it's a kind of follow-up, but it is specifically addressing the crisis in human society and human belonging. And he sees that life is becoming more and more conflictual, more violent. Our societies are more polarized, conflict. We have a culture of ever greater conflict. So it's harder and harder for us to encounter each other respectfully and to listen to each other. So I would say that's the equivalent of the ecological crisis is there is an equivalent emergency social crisis. Mm -hmm. And just as we're on the cliff edge ecologically, we're also on the cliff edge in terms of human society. I mean, just look at the wars that are now being waged, the way, the incapability of the Western world right now to deal with the atrocities, you know, in Gaza or to stop Putin's up. So there's a kind of a breakdown in the international order, which Mm -hmm. Francis references, of course, at the beginning of Fratelli Tutti. And one of the things that synodality is seeking to do is to help us in the church learn to have good conversations, to listen to each other deeply and respectfully, to enable people to be recognized and seen And so this to me is the big cultural conversion that synodality is calling us to. We have to change that within the church. Mm -hmm. We have to learn a new way of relating to each other so that we can help society learn that new way of relating. And that's why synodality is so crucial. I dedicate a whole day of the retreat to, it's called Around a Common Table, which is about Mm -hmm. fraternity and synodality. And I show how synodality, in a sense, is about learning the art of fraternity. Mm-hmm. And certainly synodality has been interpreted by many people, not just yourself, as the defining theme of what we can admit is probably the final phase of Francis' pontificate. You mentioned to me when we were at the Synod together that you're working on a third biography of the Pope. So your first one was The Great Reformer, then you had Wounded Shepherd, which had to deal with sort of some of the issues that had come up during Francis' papacy. Now there's this last book, this last era. You have a front row to the Synod. You've been involved in various phases of the process. Just tell me about what you think is coming next for the Francis Pontificate. Yes. Well, I think synodality is very much framing the final phase of this pontificate, or the fruition, let's call it, of this pontificate. Mm. I hope it lasts for a long time still. Sure, of course. But there is a sense in which this is the reform, this is the change to which in many ways the pontificate has been leading up to over the last 10 mm-hmm. years. And of course, it, in the synods that Francis has himself overseen, that's to say the two synods on the family and the one on young people, one on Amazonia, you can see him teaching the church you know, what it is to be synodal, what it means to listen deeply, to speak courageously, what it means to discern 
as a group, as a church, where the Spirit is leading us. And so I think this is, I mean, a bit like John the Twenty Third, you know, calls the Second Vatican Council, but he doesn't live to see it all through. Obviously, mm-hmm. I hope Francis will be around a long time after October. But nonetheless, one has a sense that this is the beginning of a very deep conversion and change in the Church, which is going to last a generation. And he's the mm-hmm. one who, again, as a Latin American, and as you said earlier, from his own experience, has enabled this process, which is a recovery of something, of course, that is innate to the church and that's there in the Acts of the Apostles. And as somebody said, you know, it's like a muscle mm-hmm. we need to learn how to use again. Mm. You know, at the same time, we've also seen Pope Francis accelerate the changes that he's been making, the reforms he's been making. How does that square with, you know, this idea that the Pope is also moving us towards synodality, towards discerning in common? Yeah, I don't think there's any contradiction between synodality and decisive governance, which is what Mm -hmm. Francis gives us. And we don't have a sort of Anglican parliamentary system of synods, you know, where things are subject to votes. And it's very interesting at the moment to see that certain questions which have come up through the synod, you know, women, diaconate and seminaries and so on, he is asking to be dealt with but not actually in the synod. In other words, he's taking them out of the synod process to be dealt with by commissions and so on, because he wants the synod itself to focus on synodality. Right. Just an update for our listeners. So over this past weekend on Saturday, Pope Francis not only announced the dates of this year's October session, October 2nd through 27th, despite many requests that it be shorter than last year's, but he also named several new consultors to the Vatican Synod office, and he commissioned study groups to look into some of these key issues that came out of last year's discussion, which was recommended by the Synod in its final document from October. So I think when Francis sees the need to act and it's clear what the right way to go is, he'll do it. And we saw that with Fiducia Suplicans, the document allowing for the blessing of people in same-sex relationships. That kind of came out of the Synod as well. Francis saw what needed to be done and he did it. So I think the Synod for Francis is the place where people journey together and they are converted by that journey together and they begin to become aware of where the Spirit is pointing to things that need addressing. And then I think the Pope addresses them. The Pope, obviously, with the Curia and with the bishops, then addresses them. But, you know, this is part of the new thing we're all having to learn, you know, and the Mm -hmm. next Pope may do things differently. But my perception of Francis is that he conducts the church in a way that is unafraid of disagreement and tension, that he, in a way, encourages that so that we get greater clarity over time about where the Spirit is calling us. And once it's clear where the Spirit is calling us, we move. You know, there's no point mm-hmm. then in carrying it on as a discussion. That's a betrayal of the Spirit, actually, to carry on discussing when the direction right. is clear. And so I think you're seeing the two things together. You know, Yes, mm-hmm. greater discussion, deliberation, but at the same time also more decisive action where action needs to be taken. All right, Austin, I could talk to you all day about this. There's so many resonances across the Francis Pontificate and so much you know, spiritual richness to reflect on here. Your new book, First Belong to God, On Retreat with Pope Francis, is out everywhere now. You can buy it online, you can buy it in bookstores, and we'll put a link to where you can purchase it in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Connie. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Ricardo da Silva. Audio engineering by Frank Tucson. Production assistance from Delaney Coyne. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. To keep up with the latest news out of the Vatican, please follow us on X at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. 
You can also follow me on Twitter at Colleen Dully. That's C-O-L-L-E-E-N-D-U-L-L-E. And you can find my usual co-host, veteran Vatican correspondent Gerard O'Connell, at Jerry O. Rome. That's G-E-R-R-Y-O-R-O-M-E. Please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Media. Just click the link in our show notes. It's easy to do, and it is the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. And if you have a little time to spare, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next time. If you're a fan of Inside the Vatican, then you would love all of the other smart Catholic resources from America Magazine. Every day, you can find the best in Catholic media from America, whether it's the daily scripture reflections, Vatican analysis, or culture reviews from a Catholic perspective. You need to be reading America for a well-rounded Catholic point of view. And there's never been a better time to try it. To introduce more people to America during the season of Lent, you can try a subscription to America for just $1 for your first month. If you're already a subscriber, this is a great chance to introduce America to someone else in your life. So, please help us spread the word. To take advantage of this $1 offer, visit www.americamagazine.org forward slash trial. That's americamagazine.org slash trial. Or click the link in the show notes.